something that I need to say that's not totally related to the message before I get into it is the subject of grace. It's been coming up a lot the last couple of weeks. And it's so easy for us to relate to the Lord on the basis of our performance. The grace of God is never changing. It is unchanging. So whether you've been completely obedient or completely rebellious, it doesn't change the grace of God towards you. Your performance affects your ability to perceive it and maybe even to receive it, but not on God's side. Well, you know, I haven't prayed as much as I should this week, so therefore, you know, God's not going to be able to bless me. See, that's performance-based walk. That's works. That's not grace. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of relating to God on the basis of works. Let's, just a reminder, we don't need to do that. He's just as gracious to you as if you are perfectly obedient, as if, and, and if you're not and you slip up, he's still going to be good to you. And kind to you because that's who he is. As I said, there are consequences for rebellion. There's consequences for disobedience. But as far as affecting the grace of God and his love and goodness towards us, it is not, doesn't affect that. You're his. You belong to him. Relate to the Lord on the basis of grace, not works. This morning we want to uh, look at chapter 7 here. And in reality, this chapter is sort of an insert uh, uh, from Exodus chapter 40. Now, we covered that a couple years ago. And uh, this is the consecration and dedication of the nation uh, by the leaders of the tribes uh, before the Lord. And so in the first three chapters of Numbers, we have the census giving, given here. They're, what God is doing is he's preparing the nation uh, for war. And so we have the numbering of the, of the men in, uh, that could go to war. Uh, then we have the priests getting uh, uh, their assignments in regards to what they're supposed to be doing. And it, it is God in his perfect way preparing his people f- to execute the plan and purposes that he had for the nation. And this is important. And so as we pick up, uh, if you'll stand, and I'm going to read the first uh, ten verses here. Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses who were the leaders of the tribes and over those who were numbered, made an offering and they brought their offering before the Lord. Six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two leaders, and for each one an ox. And they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. And so Moses took the carts and oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershom, according to their service, and four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, 
according to their service under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things, which they carried on their shoulders. Now the leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. And so the leaders offered their offering before the altar. For the Lord had said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings one leader each day for the dedication of the altar. You may be seated. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass. Now, so this word is also used in uh, Exodus chapter 40, verse 17, where the Lord uh, said, Has it came to pass? So we have a sort of a hint of the time period in which this uh, took place. We have uh, probably about a year. In a month or so, this is the beginning of the second year, near the beginning of the second year since they have left the uh, time of Egypt. So you get that time frame in your mind, and they're right here at the end of finishing up uh, the work of the tabernacle. Uh, in Exodus chapter 40, uh, verse 9, Moses was given instructions there uh, to anoint the tabernacle and all that was in it. So you kind of get the idea that it's, it, it, there's a, that connection there. It says in verse 9 there, You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it. You shall hollow it and all of its utensils, it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering in, its, in all its utensils and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it. And then we also have a corresponding scripture there in Leviticus chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then the Lord brought Aaron and his sons, and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes, and put hats on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he had finished setting up the tabernacle. Everything had been anointed and prepared uh, for the service and the worship of Yahweh. Uh, now, think of back, if, and try to picture in your mind being in the camp of Israel. Maybe even being one of the leaders there. You know, just hoping to, like, Get to the promised land ASAP. You know, Lord, let's just get on with this, you know. And there is that uh, sense of urgency that we have in our hearts in serving the Lord and wanting to get the gospel out and, and become all that God wants us to be. And, and, we get, and it's easy to be, get sort of impatient in waiting upon the Lord to, you know, to, to get, you know, get on with it, you know. Well, and that's one of the things you'll learn right, on, right away, at least at some point in time, if you're walking with the Lord, but you have to learn to be patient. Waiting upon the Lord to assemble the troops, to bring into play all the factors that are necessary to accomplish His plan and purposes. It isn't all about getting you ready or me ready. 
he's assembling all of his troops and all all of the things that are involved in what he wants to do are taken into account. There's not one detail that God is not aware of that he knows needs to be done before the work and the plan can commence. And that's sort of what's going on here. A year, over a year now, they've been there at Sinai. They've received the law. They've had tremendous miraculous happenings. Uh, the very presence of God has freaked them out and blown them away. And I mean, there isn't much, you know, they've seen it all, that first generation, the miracles there in Egypt. I mean, wow, you know, let's just go kill these people in the promised land and get on with it, you know. I mean, there's all kinds of things that may have come up in, the, in some of the people's minds. But learning patience, waiting for God's plan to unfold is a critical aspect, and it's actually required of us. Uh, you might be ready, but others may not be ready as we can see here. So God is preparing Israel uh, for his plan of action among the nations. They're going to be a player on the world scene. They're just not uh, some local fellowship that's going to exist. God is preparing them for uh, work on the national scale, if you will, the global scale. He, they will become his instrument of judgment to take out the corruption that is in the promised land. It is now close to the time when the sins of the Amorites has now come to the full and the instrument of judgment. Those that were devoted to destruction, Kaharim, those seven nations who uh, were godless, devil-worshipping nations would be Eliminated. It was all tied into the bloodlines that had been corrupted. And so uh, God was taking them out, not only for their corruption, but also for the preservation of his own people. Had God allowed those nations to continue to exist and then move his people in there, it would, it would not be long before the, that corruption would invade his nation and his people and begin to corrupt them and to destroy them, and God would have none of that. And so it was house cleaning time in the near future. And God is now preparing Israel to, to be his instrument. What we're going to see here also is just the nature and character of God if we're, if we're paying attention. Uh, we're going to be moving, as it were, the tent of meeting that Moses uh, would go to on the edge of the camp. And he would go into that tent you know, remember reading the verses where as he would walk through the camp and the people knew that he was heading to the tent, they'd all stand up, you know, like, yes, sir, you know, the whole army type thing, you know. And Moses would go through the camp into the tent, and then when he would enter the tent, he, the Lord was there and, and would dictate to him uh, all these statutes, rules, and regulations and his mind and heart in regards to worship. That's where we get the first five books, right? It's, it, a lot of that happened in that tent of meeting. But what we're going to see here is that tent of meeting is now going to be transferred to the Holy of Holies, to the place where Moses would go into the holy place and there between the cherubim, above the mercy seat, the voice of God would speak to Moses. And this is uh, what was about to take place. God was not going to just remain on the edge of the camp with Moses. He's now coming into the center of the camp to be very close and as close as he could get to the people. God loves his people. He wants to be close to them and, and he to them, them to, to him as well. So uh, this is what we're going to see uh, take place in this uh, after now that the tabernacle has been set up. 
It's been anointed. It's been consecrated. It's been made holy for a specific use. And this is true of the believer. We are now the temple. We are now the tabernacle of the Lord. He has anointed you. He has consecrated you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now the word anointed is, is an is a interesting word, really. It really, it's actually the Hebrew word is meshek. So we, it's Messiah, it's the anointed one. Uh, but literally it means to smear. So sometimes when we have the moving of the Holy Spirit here, which happens on a regular basis, which I am thankful for, and we anoint people with oil, we're, we just sort of smear it on your forehead. <laughs> And uh, but that's a consecration. It's it's anointing. It's a it's a it's a making uh, one as it were uh, holy unto the Lord. There's something special. We're we're putting the name of the Lord, as it were, upon the people that we're praying for. And so it's symbolic of all that. And so the anointing is a very important thing in, in the idea of being consecrated to God. When something is dedicated and consecrated to God, guess what happens? It becomes His. Now, I don't know about you, but there's things that are mine. I try to take care of them. I, I, I'm glad that I have them. I want to use them for the reason that I possess them. And, and if someone takes them from me without permission and, and as to steal or to thief, uh, become a thief, I, I'm not very happy about something like that. And I'm sure you're not either. Uh, so think in terms of how jealous God is over you. You're consecrated to him. You've been anointed by him. Do you think he's just going to let someone you know, come in and just wreck your life? Some unseen uh, bandit from the unseen realm? Some demon or some fallen angel that wants to destroy you? I say not. God is jealous over us. Thank God for his protection. We'll see that a little bit later here as well. The anointing and consecration upon our lives is very important. And so God, knowing our fallen condition, has made provision for our fallenness. And as I uh, mentioned earlier, the whole thing about performance-based, we know we mess up. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we cross the line, and sometimes our fallen nature just gets the best of us. And then we feel guilt, and then we have to repent and, you know, confess it. And, oh, Lord, here we go again, you know. And it's just, you know, it doesn't get any better when you get older. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Uh, the old man grows corrupt over the years, right? Uh, but this anointing and consecration is very important to us. We must have this regular provision applied to our hearts and minds so that we don't stray in our devotion uh, to the Lord. So uh, thank God he's, he's given us all that we need uh, to continue our walks in, in victory, as it were. Now, what we have see here is that the leaders of the tribes brought forth their offering to the Lord. And I think, uh, you know, you look at some of this, and you think, man, this is pretty dry stuff. I mean, this numbers, the law. And, oh. <laughs> you know, you, you, know, you kind of get that maybe in your daily devotions. And like, man, slim pickings here, Lord. But if you look, think about it, you know, long enough and pray over it, you, you, can, you can draw some things out for help, right, for encouragement. And so one of the things that's here is, obviously, the leaders are the ones that come 
forth. And that's the way it should be. Men, we're to lead our families. Leaders come first. Leaders do it first. Leaders set the example. It's not do as I say, it's do as I do. It should be the pattern among... And they're the ones that are bringing the offerings. They do it first. The congregation will follow. They'll bring their oxen and their lambs and they'll make their presentations. But they are consecrating, as it were, each of the tribes uh, before the Lord. And so uh, they're doing a good thing here. And so the Lord speaks to Moses and says, yes, this is good. Let this happen. Let them bring what they're bringing and uh, set it before you here. And so we see, uh, as we've read here, the six carts and the 12 oxen. And these are actually gifts uh, for the Levites to do their work. And one of the other things that obviously sticks out there uh, is he shall give, in verse 5, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall give to the Levites to every man according to his service. Now, you can easily extrapolate something from that one, right? And that is whatever God has called you to. He will give you the wherewithal to accomplish it. God never asks you to do something that he doesn't also enable you to do. Now, there are those who try to do stuff on their own, and that usually it doesn't work out as well, uh, as most of us have learned that a time or two. It's always best to just allow, allow the Holy Spirit to empower you and enable you to do what he's called you to do. And so we see that each man according to his service is endowed with whatever is necessary to carry it out. And notice that these men, uh, uh, these three of the tribes, we've mentioned that a, uh, a few weeks back here now, Gershom and, and um, Merari and Kohath, the three uh, groups of Levites, they were not the priests that, who offered the sacrifices, but they were Levites because not all the Levites were priests. But all the priests that were priests were Levites. And there's a distinction there. And the ones that were uh, in charge of taking down the tabernacle, dealing with the holy things, uh, were lined out in their tasks. We kind of went through that whole thing in detail. But uh, the, the differentiation that's made here uh, between the Kohathites and the Gershonites and Maronites is pretty obvious. Those closest to the holy things, that things were, were that really had to deal with the direct worship of God, uh, were handled by the Kohathites. They had an honored position uh, there, and so their responsibility was to bear their burden upon their shoulders. That wasn't given to the cart. I know we want to sometimes criticize David uh, when he, you know for the whole idea of bringing the ark back into to Jerusalem and all and they put the ark on a cart you guys remember and Uzzah ends up sticking his hand because the, the ox stumbled and you know I've got to help God out here well God doesn't need any help well it didn't go so well for him and J- David is offended by all this but it wasn't some idea of David to come up with these carts this is what they used but they just didn't read this fine print they didn't pay attention to the details you understand details are important details are important the Ark of the Covenant was not to be borne upon a cart. It was to be borne upon the shoulders through the poles uh, in the rings in the Ark on the shoulders of the Kohathites. And so David finally got that right here. So that's, this is uh, how the gifts were to be used. Notice how God, again in detail here, the gifts are given, but then he's explicit how the gifts are to be used. Thank you, Lord, for your attention to detail.
If you think about it, the children of Israel had one of the greatest privileges of all time. God was dwelling in their midst. I mean, how would you like to get up in the morning? Well, there's the, there's the cloud. There's the Lord, the Lord's presence there. It's dark, but there's the fire. There's water out of the rock. There's manna out here every morning. I mean, I mean, life happening, it's miraculous on a regular basis. It's kind of, you know, it's like, it's like the ministry that the, the apostles had or the disciples had at that time with Jesus. He's just a handy guy to have around. You hungry? Here, just, let's just, here's some fish. Oh, you, you, your mom's sick? Okay, no problem. Your brother died? That's not a problem either. I mean, just a miracle machine, right? It's great. You know, 365, 24-7, 365, God was with them always. What a tremendous privilege to see. Do you think your privilege with God is any less? He's with you 24 365 too. Well, 365.25, okay, yeah. He's with you. He never will leave us. He never will forsake us. You're a miracle that you are saved. He does miracles all the time in protecting you, especially some of you guys, and I know you're a little bit dangerous. <laughs> what a great privilege to have the Holy Spirit. We are the tabernacle. We are the temple. I mean, we sort of kind of sort of take it for granted. You know, sometimes you think, where are you, Lord? He said, well, just look in the mirror. <laughs> I'm inside you. You can't see me, but I'm there. You know, and this is the thing that people outside the church, outside of faith, do not understand. You've got to be careful with the language. You can't use Christianese around non-Christians. That's not a good thing. They not, they'll just think you're nuts. They won't understand what you're talking about. Oh, so God lives in you. Okay. <laughs> They don't understand. And you, you know, it's like trying to make a blind man see. It's not, you're just wasting your time in that regard. Just let your, sight, your light so shine before men that they see your good works. They can see that. They can understand that. And that will be sufficient. You know, it's really sad, and I want to speak to the people that may be listening online, and maybe even some sitting here in the building here. You know, there are a lot of Christians, or people who think they're Christians, you know, because they were raised in the church, uh, or they've been going to church since they were, you know, little people. And so they sort of, like, have inherited their ancestral faith, as it were. But it doesn't work that way. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children that are born again. And if you'll open your heart and your mind, you won't be on the outside looking in, so to speak. It'll be a, a living testimony and personal experience for you. And it needs to be. You know, when the Holy Spirit begins to work in you because he's inside you, he begins to clean house and reorganize and reprioritize your life. It's a wonderful thing to have your heart changed. You'll begin to understand God, the things of God, 
The scriptures will no longer be just words on a page. They'll become the living word that sort of jump off the page into your heart and mind like, wow, that is, I've never seen that before. Yes, your eyes will be opened. If you'll open your heart and your mind and turn to Jesus, he'll deal with you. He always starts out with what's most important. And what's most important is that we have our sins forgiven. This is what was going on here. They are consecrating the altar so that they might provide sacrifice to deal with the guilt that takes place in our lives when we cross the line and we do things that we ought not to do. We're born into sin. We're born with a corrupted nature. We can't help ourselves in that regard. But thank God that he's made provision. For them, it was through sacrifice. For us, it was through the sacrifice of Christ. But we need to have our sins forgiven. Jesus made that very clear in his earthly ministry. One must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. You will not see, perceive, you will not understand. You're blind to what God requires. You know, most people in this world believe that the default position when they die is that they're going to heaven because they're good. Most people innately believe that their righteousness is sufficient to allow God to give them entrance into his heavenly chambers. And this isn't so. The Bible's very clear. There are none righteous. No, not one. Well, there was one. And they crucified him. Jesus was the only sinless man. But all the rest of us are as our parents, Adam and Eve. And we must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. We're born after our mom, our dad, and we have a fallen nature, fallen human nature. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And, and Jesus told us that we would not necessarily understand how this works. He said that wind blows where it wants, and you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And it's just like that with the Holy Spirit. You don't know how God is going to work and bring someone to himself, or how he actually does his work within the human soul. I sometimes, and you can probably bear witness to this as well, how in the world did I get saved? I was such a heathen, hellion, and I... I mean, of course, I shocked a lot of people, too, <laughs> besides myself, you know. Like, how did this happen, you know? Well, I know how it happened. The Lord's Spirit was working with me, dealing with me, convicting me. The Bible says that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And He's at work. God's Spirit is at work in this world. Those of you listening by online now can be under conviction of the Holy Spirit that you need to repent. You need to ask Christ for forgiveness. You need to be saved. You need to be born again. That's the Holy Spirit working on you. He works on us continually because God loves us. And he doesn't want us to be separated from God, him. You know, sin separates us from God. Now as a believer, we do have to deal with sin. And one of the things to remember in this is that sin does not break our relationship with God. In other words, if I sin as a, one of his sons, he doesn't kick me out of the family. Well, I've had it with you. You've sinned too many times now. You're gone. 
<laughs> now that's maybe how we would met it out because we're angry and we're short-tempered with people maybe. Not God. Sin does not break relationship. If you've truly repented and turned your life over to Christ and been forgiven and you do sin, you are not breaking your relationship with God. But what does happen is that you break the fellowship, the nearness, the closeness that you normally would feel with God. There's now a separation in that sense because you have violated the law of love in some way. And what does he say we're to do when we do that, when we get convicted? If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the guy who continues to live in sin and denial that he is a sinner, well, he's just self-deceived. He's just playing games with whatever. He's not, he's not right with God. But if the person is truly repentant and broken before God, when they confess their sin, it is completely taken away. And that's a wonderful thing about being saved. Now, in verses 10 through 88, hold on, we're not going to go through 88 verses. <laughs> Just saying. We are going to read one of what one of the tribes did. Because they all did the same thing. <laughs> all right. Let's pick it up in verse 12. For the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nishan, son of <clears throat> Aminadab, from the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats of the sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amminadab. That was the first day. And there were 11 more days after that. So 12 days, each tribe had their own day uh, to offer before the Lord. Uh, they had a, I don't know if there's any significance. I never really do, delved into that. But uh, Judah, Isaacar, Zebulun, Reuben, Samuel, Simeon, Gad, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Though that was the order which uh, they offered each one their own day. And they offered the four basic offerings uh, there listed in the first few chapters of Leviticus. The grain offering, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the peace offering. All these were there placed upon the altar uh, and the meaning and purpose are important. The grain offering is, speaks of loyal submission. You see, these offerings weren't just, oh, well, I think that the Lord's saying, oh, I just think I'll have them give me, me some wheat and corn every now and then. Oh, they need a blood offering because they've sinned. Well, you know, that's part, part of what's going on here. But there's, there's meaning and symbolism behind that. And it's important that we fetch that out of there so that we can appreciate God's plans and purposes. The grain offering, speaking of loyal submission. The burnt offering, total surrender. Think Romans 12, 1 and 2. The sin offering, which is, again, the confession and repentance from sin. 
We need forgiveness. And then the peace offering. Just simply going to Yahweh's house and having a joyous fellowship with them, having dinner in Yahweh's house there at the tabernacle. Again, we have this family of God atmosphere. We are the sons and daughters of God coming to his house to have dinner with him. That's why Jesus ate with sinners. He's, he's fulfilling the typology here uh, that is given in the Old Testament. A lot, a lot there. So um, moving on here. So this idea of consecrating the altar, dedicating the altar for each of the tribes, it, it speaks of each tribe and each individual in the tribe having self-evaluation. This is what, and actually this is the, the word that's used for prayer in the Old Testament. It's, it connotates self-evaluation. That's what, it's in, thinking, okay, where am I at in my relationship with God? That is part of the Old Testament meaning of that word. We are to comp- self-evaluate before God. And, and, and most of us do. Uh, Simply learning how to be honest with ourselves about where we're at in, in our activities and dealing with our guilt if we violated our conscience in some way. I like what Susan, Susanna Wesley wrote to her son John uh, years ago, about 300 and some years ago. Well, almost 300 years. Uh, Take this rule, she said. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs your tenderness of conscience, obscures your sense of of God or takes off your relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in and of itself. Now that's some serious thought put into that statement, but it nails it perfectly when it comes to self-evaluation. Take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things, in short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in and of itself. Think about how serious sin is. It cost Jesus his life on the cross. It's not something we're to mess with. Now, I know we're going to push the envelope here as time, but let me say there's a couple of other things that are important here. Each tribe was given their own day. Now, you read through this, you think, well, you know, 70-some verses, and they're just repeating the same thing over. Put in the different name of the chief, the leader of the tribe, and, you know, you know, cookie cutter, stamp, 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 and, you know, we just kind of blow through that as we're reading through it. Well, I, there's a reason God takes the time to say it the way he has said it, to have it recorded the way he wanted it recorded. First of all, every tribe is unique of itself and every person in that tribe had equal access to the grace of God and each tribe had their own day as each individual in this room and that has ever lived will have their day 
with God. God sees the group. He sees the nation, but he sees also the individual. It's always that way. It's very important that you understand this concept of the day. You can have your day. It's your choice. You're going to have a day. I'm going to have a day. I can have a day with the Lord while I still am alive in this world. A day where I come to God and I have an encounter with Him and I ask Him for the forgiveness of my sins. Now, you might say within your heart, well, you know, I'll want to put that day off because actually I know that I'll get it right with the guy upstairs sometime, but today is my day and I want to have fun. I want to do this or that. And I know I probably need to do that, you know, but right now I'm not ready for the day. Well, unfortunately, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you do put it off, and you don't have your day while you're still alive in this earth, then you're going to have a day anyway. A day that you stand before God and you answer to Him for the life that you've lived. You might have a couple different questions that He might ask you. I'm not sure how that day will go for you if you stand before Him without your sins forgiven, but it might go something like this. What did you do with the life that I gave you while you were on earth? You're going to have to answer that question. Second question might be, why should I let you into my heaven? And if, you, if your answer is something, well, because I'm a pretty good person, that will not qualify you for entrance. Because you're not perfect. You're not holy. You're not righteous. You have the guilt of sin. And God is requiring payment for your sin. Now, you could have had your day on earth while you were still breathing and asked Jesus to, to pay your debt to cover your sins, but you refused. So there is a day coming. And I would encourage you, if you've not yet had that day, that you make it today. Don't put it off. You're just wasting time. What would you, as Jesus said, what, what are you going to give in exchange for your soul? What's more important than your eternal salvation? There's nothing more important than that. Secondly, there's nothing more important in a person's life than the presence of God. God wants to share his love, his life, his goodness with each and every one of his created children. And it's up to us whether or not we receive it. So, one of the things about doing a message like this is that we can skip over some verses, right? We can go right to the end. Let's go to verse 89. <laughs> How'd you like that one? <laughs> you got the dittos, right? <laughs> verse 89, I find it interesting. And I know I'm going over a little bit, but this is, this is it's a special for us. Now, when the Lord went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony, and from between the two cherubim, thus he spoke to him. Could you imagine that experience? Now, that is how I did mention this earlier. He moved from the edge of the camp, the tent of meeting, where it was just Moses, and, and actually Joshua snuck in there on occasion, we read. Smart guy. 
Then he experienced the presence of the Lord. That was a face-to-face encounter. As a man speaks to his friend face-to-face, that's the kind of relationship that Moses had with, with Yahweh. Isn't that amazing? Nobody else in human history had a relationship like that. Not before, not after. Just pretty amazing. Now the angel of the Lord did appear to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob in different times. There was that manifestation. The word appeared to them. The word, we know who the word is. The word of the Lord is Jesus, right? He appeared to Genesis 15, for example. And so we have that. But this whole thing with writing out the law and dictating all this is amazing. Incredible. So turn with me. There's a, this goes back to Exodus 40, and this is where we'll end. 34 through 38. This is what happened. This all happened here at this culmination. They had finished the tabernacle. They put it all together. They assembled all the components. They uh, anointed everything, or Moses did. They anointed the priesthood. They raised the tabernacle. It's there. It's ready to go. It's about two weeks before the the, uh, second Passover that they're going to observe a nation. And this is an incredible, glorious time. And God has been moving towards this moment. They've had to be patient and wait for all the ministry teams to, to get together and that finish the, the wardrobe. The guys to finish the construction of the sockets and the poles and the curtains and all the things that needed to happen by all these various ministry teams. And, and then God brought it all together. And this moment could not happen that we're about to read about until all that was done. You see, God is doing the same thing in his church. He's bringing his church to an expected end. He's working here. He's working over there. Various ministry teams around the world throughout his entire body of working together to accomplish a magnificent person. Well, why is it taking so long? Why isn't Jesus back yet? I know there's some of it requires patience. We do get impatient in waiting upon God. But he's not impatient. Why is he so patient? Because he wants the precious fruit of the harvest. He knows that if he would come back or would have come back yesterday, there's people that would not be in the kingdom. And when we stop and pause for a moment, why God, in our, from our perspective, delays in his coming? Why not now? Because God's timing says it's not ready. The fullness of time has not yet expired. It's not perfect. And we know that everything that God does is perfect. It's wonderful. It's loving. It's kind. It's all-inclusive. It's incredible. Look what they got to experience. Because they waited, and because Moses was a good leader, and he obeyed the voice of the Lord, look what happened. The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up above the tabernacle, the children would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they would not journey until the day that it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and the fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. When we do things God's way, when we are consecrated, 
Our lives are dedicated to Him. We learn how to be patient and wait for God to do all His work and all the lives that are involved in what He's doing. He will manifest His glory. And when God begins to move in revival, and I mean this, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be so intense and so powerful, we're not going to stand in His presence. We will fall on our faces. We will be humbled before our God, as we should be. It'll be a glorious outpouring of God's Spirit. God, make us ready. There's much more to share here. One, one other thing I think is worth mentioning as we get ready for communion is God's glory and His beauty are sort of interchangeable. When it says the glory of the Lord appeared. We could say the beauty of the Lord appeared. And we experience it here on a maybe a micro level, right? When the Lord's presence is here, it's you know, there's it's just a beautiful thing. The joy, the love, the goodness that just is manifest in all our hearts and we we know it, we sense it, we're blessed by it. It's just an incredible experience. You can expand upon what the cloud means to you the protection from the heat, the fire to keep them warm at night. Think of God's protection in His presence over our lives. I think these are incredible things. But in reality, the ultimate glory of God was revealed in who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And you think that the God of glory would condescend in such a way to become a man and then as a man humble himself to die a most gruesome death upon a cross with the nails driven through his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns jammed on his head, a back lacerated, a face with his beard plucked out, beaten beyond human recognition that he would allow his created ones to do that to him, that he might be the one that paid the debt that we owed. That's what communion is all about. God never wants us to think, never wants us to forget, and to think any less of what he's done on our behalf. There's a song that, I, that is, I don't know the song or the writer of it, but I heard it the other day, and it's, it's, in, it's been around a while. There's only one person with scars in heaven. Will we for eternity look upon the one who paid the price? So as you observe communion and the fellows are going to get up now and they're going to pass it out to you. You're going to take the cup and you and your privacy of your own heart. Take the time to remember what Jesus Christ did for you personally. If you have not had your day and bowed your heart and asked God for forgiveness, today, make this day that day. Observe communion. Self-examine as you pray. Confess and repent. And may God just fill your life with His blessings, His love, His goodness. God bless you as you observe communion.